I would like to start out this morning with a brief story. It starts in Chicago in the early 1870s. Horatio G. Spafford was a successful lawyer and a businessman in Chicago. He had a lovely family, a wife, Anna, and four children. However, they were not strangers to tears or to tragedy. Their young son died of pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. Yet God, in his mercy and his kindness, allowed that business to flourish once more. On November 21st, 1873, the French ocean liner, the Ville du Arve, was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. with 313 passengers on board. Among the passengers were Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Although Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his family, he found it necessary to stay in Chicago due to an unexpected business problem. He told his wife he would join him, her, her and her four children in Europe a few days later. His plan was to take another ship. About four days into crossing the Atlantic, the Ville du Arve collided with a powerful iron-hulled Scottish ship called the Loch Urn. Suddenly, all those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck of the Ville du Arve. She knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanetta. She praised to God that he would spare them, and if it could be, with, if it could be his will. If not, he prayed that they would be willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the Ville du Arve slipped beneath the deep, deep waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the 313 passengers, including all four of the Spafford children. A sailor was rowing a small boat over the ship where the ship went down, spotted a woman floating among the wreckage. It was Anna, still alive. He pulls her onto the boat, and they were picked up by a large vessel, which nine days later lands in Cardiff, Wales. From there, she wires her husband a message, which begins, Saved alone, what shall I do? Mr. Spafford later frames this telegram and places it in his office. Among the ship's survivors, Pastor Waste later recalls Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they've been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Mr. Spafford books passage on the next available ship and leaves to join his grieving wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain calls Spafford to the cabin and told him they were over the place where his children went down, and he ends up writing the song that Tide just led. Anna gives birth to three more children, one of which dies at age four with dreaded pneumonia. In August of 1881, the Spaffords moved to Jerusalem, where they are now buried today. You see, this story is both, both very powerful and very humbling. It's a story of loss, a story of tragedy, and a story of adversity. When I tell of this story and its solemn understanding it brings to the faithful Christian, I take an honest look inside of my heart and ask, in a situation like that, in a situation of immense adversity, how would I respond? Would I stand strong in my faith, trusting in God's plan, or would I fall by the wayside? Would I use that tragic situation to build my faith, or would it tear me down? Would I use this situation to impact other Christians around me, or would my actions in this time of sorrow have negative effect on my friends, my family, or maybe even my church? 
I'm sure everyone here this morning has gone through something difficult, some adversity, some of which may be fighting that adversity as we speak. But how are we as Christians supposed to respond to adversity? How are we as Christians supposed to fight adversity and maintain our faith? I want to look at a few passages to focus our study of responding to adversity this morning. You know, when I think of verses in the Bible and and stories of the Bible, I always find it interesting how we as readers can glean different things from different passages. I'm not saying we take different meanings because the Bible is very black and white and God is not the author of confusion. Just at different points in our lives or with different experiences or in different places in our lives, we can look at passages differently. Take, for instance, John 3.16, a verse all of us can quote off the top of our head. That verse means a lot to me. I understand what Jesus did for me. I understand the love of God and the compassion of Christ and the impact and the power of that verse. But for all the parents out there, the first part of that verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It probably means more to you when you hold your newborn child at that moment than it ever does. You understand the impact and the power of what God has done for us more than you ever had. Does that mean you didn't grasp it prior to holding your own child? Well, of course not. It just means more than it did. And I can give you example after example of this idea with the institution of marriage and how that's an example of Christ's love for the church. And you understand that once you have a spouse and how experience basically can help us understand things better than we have before. The reason I understand and the reason I say this this morning is to show that there's more to some of the most familiar stories of the Bible than we realize. There's more topics that can be derived from certain stories than we look at. And that's what I want to do for you this morning. While reading these passages, we'll find two men, both who experience a great fall from faith, yet respond in very different ways. If you would, grab a Bible in front of you. The verses will be on the board for your convenience. If you'd like to follow along, we'll be in Matthew, the 26th chapter, starting in verse 19. Matthew 26, starting in verse 19. The Bible reads this. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And they did eat, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Skip on down to verse 30. The Bible picks up and says, And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you that this night, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. All of us are familiar 
with both men in these stories. Both Judas and Peter were apostles to Jesus with, and with Jesus during his greatest adversity. You see, with the apostles Peter and Judas, we find two men in a very similar situation. We find two men facing adversity and facing trials. We know both Judas and Peter served as apostles for Christ. Both apostles Judas and Peter had the power to perform miracles and perform those miracles according to Mark 6. Mark 6 talks of the apostles being sent out to cast demons, and neither Peter or Judas is mentioned as an exception. So due to the flow of that verse and the context of the 12 there in Mark 6, we can assume that both could perform miracles. We see in John 12 that Judas has a problem with greed. The context there is Judas is aggravated of, of this costly jar of oil and it's being used on Jesus instead of being sold. And it's even mentioned in that verse that Judas is a thief. You'll remember in John the 18th chapter that Peter cuts the ear off of a soldier attempting to arrest Jesus. So we see here the pride and the temper of Peter as he's told by Jesus in what was probably a very confusing thing to Peter at the time that Jesus needs to drink the cup which his father gave him. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And of course, our main passage or text of this morning, we see Christ warning them. And I say warning them from the perspective of Judas and Peter because Christ knew exactly what was about to happen and what would be done in the coming hours. You see, we see very similar situations from the start, yet find opposite outcomes, one ending in repentance and one in death. Obviously, we all know that both Peter and Judas fell into sin, and they did exactly what Christ told them they were going to do. But what happened after? How did they respond? We know that Judas, according to the 27th chapter of Matthew's gospel, went and hung himself. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5 says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the thirty pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and went and hanged himself. Acts, the first chapter, tells us a different account or what some people consider to be a contradictory account of Judas' death, saying he fell headlong and his insides fell out. I don't believe this is a contradiction, but simply a different perspective. You see, Luke was a medical doctor, and his recording is there in Acts. For example, consider Eli. If Eli gets hurt, and I'm talking about Timothy's son, Eli, if Eli gets hurt and his arm is bleeding, Timothy might describe that arm as red. He might describe... How, how he fell, maybe. But Leah, on the other hand, being in the medical field, might tell you some fancy medical term of what happened to Eli. They would both be describing the exact same story, but they're not contradicting. They just describe different parts. But they still say the same story, the story of Judas's gruesome death. You see, Judas does exactly what Christ told him he was going to do. You can imagine the anguish and the torment in Judas. The consequences of Judas' action coming about. Judas is thinking, I just killed the Son of God. You see, Judas was overcome by grief. He was overcome by disgust at the deed that he had just performed. And Judas takes the fastest way out. Judas chooses to end his life. Judas submits to adversity 
rather than to God. Peter, on the other hand, just as Judas, deeply regrets what he had done. He was upset. I submit to you, he was probably pretty mad at himself for what he had done in the book of Luke chapter 22. He denies Christ just as predicted, but responds in a very different way from Judas. You see, when faced with regret and adversity, Peter turns to repentance. Peter turns to his faith, and Peter turns to God. This morning, I want to look at this topic of responding to adversity and use the Apostle Peter as a guide, and how he turns from sin and from sorrow to repentance and submission to God's will and becomes one of the greatest servants in God's kingdom this world will ever know. First of all, I believe we as Christians have to understand we will undergo adversity. We as Christians will be tested, and all of us, especially me, will fail. But with that understanding, we as Christians should learn to expect adversity and prepare for adversity. We often have problems as Christians and as humans about being honest with our adversity, and we struggle with relying on our faith and start questioning God. It's a natural human reaction to question God in times of trial and times of adversity. We fall into that trap of asking why. We ask why something is happening to us. Why did something bad happen to my family? Why would God allow something or something bad or some adversity to happen to me? Why me? Well, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this idea this morning. I do believe we, under, we need some kind of understanding of why bad things and adversity come into our lives. And I believe once we comprehend and understand that there will be adversity in trials, we can discuss what our response to that adversity should be. While we as humans cannot begin to understand the complexity of God and the adversity that comes into our lives, I believe what we consider as bad as humans can be traced back to one central thought. And I believe that thought is simply free will. Free will allows man to choose and make all decisions. Free will is what allows us to choose whether to love God because love has to be freely given. And with that free will, we are free to choose to obey God. But with anything, there's another side to the story. Free will also allows men to choose not to obey or not to love God. It allows man to sin and fall away and separate from God. For example, the sin of man in the book of Genesis leads to the fall of man and the separation from God, which allows disease and death and sorrow and all these horrible things to enter the world. I mentioned that free will gives man the opportunity to disobey God. Free will is what allows us to sin. And that sin has consequences. Alcohol can destroy your body. Lust can destroy marriages. Greed can corrupt governments. You can see just by these examples, sin can cause bad things to happen. But free will can also cause bad things to happen to other people. You see, someone else's sin can cause something bad to happen to me. If someone goes to a bar and gets drunk, they choose to commit that sin. And if they get behind a wheel and they start to drive and lose control and spin right into my driver's side door and kill me, you might ask, why has God allowed that to happen? But in all reality, that person made a choice. They made a choice to get drunk and they made a choice to get behind that will. Their sin could kill me even though I didn't deserve it, per se. 
Maybe I was just in the wrong intersection at the wrong time. You see, free will causes and has caused bad things to happen and will cause adversity in our lives. And we as Christians need to learn to expect that adversity and expect those trials and use them to bring us closer to God. If you would, turn to the book of Acts, starting in chapter 14. We're going to look at 21 and 22 here. The writer in Acts writes this. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. First Peter 4, starting in verse 12, uh, we see who the text identifies as the Apostle Peter, whom we just discussed, having endured in adversity. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happier ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. You see, we as readers can understand from the text that we as Christians will face adversity, and we will face trials in our lives. We'll go through the toughest parts of our lives in a struggle between conforming to the world around us and giving in to temptation and maintaining our faith. There will be times in our lives where we won't understand why something is happening. Times when we question, why is this happening to me? Times when we're dealt the short end of the stick, per se, but God never leaves us nor forsakes us. We should always be able to say it as well, with our soul. Like I mentioned earlier, Horatio Spafford, uh, we talked of a story of loss and of adversity. But the reason I included that story was not to make you cry or draw emotion, uh, but to show you the attitude that we as Christians need to have when fighting those adversities. In that story, when Horatio travels to the spot where all four of his daughters go down, he wrote that song, It Is Well With My Soul. The song says this, When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul though satan should buffet though trials should come let this blessed assurance control that christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ, hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll. No pang shall be mine, for in death, as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. 
The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I believe the second lesson we can draw from the Apostle Peter this morning and the Apostle Peter's faith is simply that good can come from adversity. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 starting in verse 7 or starting in verse 6, Peter writes this, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You know, when researching this topic of responding to adversity and searching through what the New Testament had to say about Peter, I found this verse very humbling. Coming from a man who committed an act he deeply regretted and faced such imaginable adversity to say such a thing, is unfathomable. Peter teaches us as Christians that these times of adversity and these trials in our lives will draw us closer to Christ and what he's done for us, will draw us closer to our ultimate goal in our lives. You know, adversity can play a different part in all of our lives and will always come in different forms, but good can come out of adversity. There was a little boy who had an adversity and didn't speak until he was four or five. Many teachers thought he had learning disability. He would ask questions and the teachers couldn't understand him. The teachers thought he was disabled. This man would go on to develop the theory of general relativity. His name is Albert Einstein. Thomas Edison tried and failed at creating the light bulb over 10,000 times. Franklin Roosevelt developed polio and was paralyzed at age 39, but would, would become one of the most respected presidents to ever live. And one of my personal favorites, Louis Zamperini, overcame severe PTSD to become an Olympic runner. But what do these small stories, what do these worldly stories have to do with adversity? You see, everyone listed here had an adversity that was overcome. And it would lead to good and create an impact upon thousands of people. But what does that have to do with us? I would submit to you this morning that our trials and our adversity can strengthen others and can strengthen our brothers and sisters. The way we conduct ourselves in these times can affect someone else and the way they react to a similar adversity. You know, recently or a few months ago, my car was breaking down quite a bit. It seemed like every other week I would get frustrated when it would break down. And I'll tell you, I wasn't super excited when I got to call my parents in those situations. Parents, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. More money down the drain, right? I'll tell you, situations like that, those small situations can be adversity in your life. A trial or a test. How many of us wake up in the morning and say, man, it sure would be nice if my car didn't start. It sure would be nice if I got a call that something terrible had happened to a family member. Of course, none of us do. My parents would reassure me. In fact, the first thing they would say would be to calm down. It's only temporary and that we'd be okay. You see, they had multiple options. They could have been really mad and could have yelled on the phone causing a chain reaction. 
Their response to adversity could have affected me, which would have put my attitude down the drain, trace it down the line, and I could have affected someone here at College Park. You see, good can come from adversity. Their choice to not overreact in that adversity has taught me how to respond to the little things in life and little trials of life without overreacting. But what about pain and loss? How can good come out of major adversity? How can good come out of pain and suffering? I believe the greatest example we can turn to in responding to adversity, responding to pain and responding to suffering, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the example of Christ is the ultimate story of overcoming adversity. And it was put into plan far before he ever arrived. We talked earlier of how the sin of man led to the fall of man and the separation from God. But our merciful and loving God already had a plan to get us back. He established a plan to save us. Jesus had to overcome the greatest adversity this world has ever seen. He willingly took on the sins of the world and died for each one of us. Although we think of Christ's pain, we think of the cross and the beating that he took. But Jesus' adversity did not start when he hit the cross. It started long before in the garden. If you would, turn in your Bible to the book of Mark, chapter 14, starting verse 32. And this verse is going to be in the New King James Version. Uh, The Bible reads this. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You see, our Lord and Savior is in immense anguish and pain trying to fight this adversity, trying to persevere for you and I. You see down there in verse 36, it reads, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. When you look up the translation for that verse and you see the Hebrew meaning for Abba Father, it's often meant in a much more compelling way, in a more anguished tone, a more intimate tone. Christ is in the garden and prays, Father, I know you can do everything. I know everything is possible for you, but please don't make me do this. There must be another way, but he still does it for us. This verse put into this meaning is a very humbling phrase. Jesus had anguish and anxiety and nervousness and whatever you want to put there about the death he was about to endure. 
Not because of something he did, but because of something I did. He cries out to his father, asking him to find any other way is denied, but he still goes to the cross for me. He took all my white lies, all my mistakes, all of my sin, and had it beaten into his hands. He said, Ethan, this is for you. This pain, this suffering, this violence is worth it for you. These nails breaking my feet, these nails in my hand, these stripes on my back, and the blood I've spilt was all for you and to cover your sin. You see, with the example of Christ, we see the culmination of adversity coming together on one thing. You see, trials and adversity will happen to all of us just as it happened to Christ. But we also see from the example of Christ that good can come from adversity. Imagine if Christ decided to be a Judas instead of a Peter, like we talked about this morning. You and I would be looking forward to an eternity in somewhere other than heaven. But Christ's perseverance and Christ's response to adversity and trial is the greatest love story ever told. For when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. This morning, when we look at things in our lives, these trials, and then focus back to the cross. Little things, small adversities, don't really mean a whole lot. That is what Peter meant when he said that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth. Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want you to examine yourself and ask, Am I a Peter or am I a Judas? When life knocks me down, do I respond like Peter and strengthen my faith and look towards the cross and my salvation? Or do I throw in the towel and give up? I want to read you one passage as we close this morning that perfectly sums up this idea. Romans 8, verse 24 through the end of the chapter. Romans 8, verse 24 through the end of the chapter reads this. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. Because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. 
Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning, if you're struggling with your response to adversity, if you're trying to fight these battles in your life and trying to push through these trials and just keep falling short, if life is overwhelming you, we would love to pray for you and pray with you. This morning, we talked a little bit about Christ and what he did for each of us. If you'd like to respond to the gospel call and be baptized for the remission of your sins, the time is now. You could pull out of this parking lot in 10 minutes and your life could end. There's a possibility that your life could end, and once it does, you can't go back. You can't leave that car, you can't leave that accident and tell God, you know what, I'm just not ready. I need more time, because God never promises us tomorrow. He doesn't promise us the next five minutes. Don't let pride get in the way, don't let fear get in your way, because you may not have time for that. But you have time right now. You have an opportunity this morning to be baptized and enter the kingdom of God. You have a loving family who will support you, a family who will care for you, and a family who needs you.